Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Imprint Companion, the podcast that snuggles up, that is the big spoon to the little spoon of Imprint Films. That's right, Australia's, I can't say brand new anymore, but Australia's newest boutique Blu-ray label. Together with me, also spooning comfortably and thoroughly snuggling up to physical media is my dear friend, Alexi Toliopoulos. Lex, it's so great to be with you, spinning some discs, another massive batch, six films of which in these two episodes we are going to unpack and unravel and just, you know, talk about all the great work that Imprint do when they bring these movies to me and you. I'm excited about this batch. A lot of new discoveries for me in this batch and one that is an iconic all-time classic that I have a lot of fondness for, but not quite as much fondness as our dear Blake Howard. <laughs> yes, this is the batch that does include the incredible new release of Alan J. Pakula's 1974 Paranoia Masterpiece, mm-hmm. The Parallax View, starring Warren Beatty. And starring uh, Blake the- Howard on an audio <laughs> commentary, okay? So this is a uh, must-buy, but we're not going to be talking about that until the next episode, right? Yeah, that's right. We're going to save that one to last because my blushing uh, will not be able to cope with the rest of the unpacking that we're going to do. But let's start out this uh, part of the batch. We're covering six films from the December batch. This episode we are going to be covering, if you haven't read it in your podcast app uh, just yet, you will be listening to us unpacking one of the picks of the entire batch, Lady in the Cage. We're going to finish with that mm-hmm. one. We're also going to cover... Ida Lupino's Outrage and House of Cards. a conspiracy thriller in the 1960s. We might start there with House of Cards, yeah, Lex. I will give you a brief... Because I haven't had a chance to watch this one yet, but you assigned yourself this one. I assigned this one to myself because it had two key ingredients for me. The first was some pep, oh. and the second was some pard. Wow. And if I can add both pep and pard, mm-hmm. ladies and gentlemen, we have the lovely George Papard. Um, kind of, I don't know, Surrogate for Rick Dalton, I guess yeah. uh, you would call from Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Love me some George Papard. This is a 1968 film. It's made by John Gilliman, who is a French director. And it also stars uh, Inga Stevens and Orson Welles as this sort of uh, uh, creepy, overarching uh, conspiracy figure. Um, and But to give you the gist, if you've never seen it, um, George Papard plays a boxer um, and... Uh, uh, Writer come boxer. He was a writer originally, but he's turned. He's started working with his fists in more ways than one. And he is broke, and he's in France, and he's out of work. And he meets uh, a wealthy widow, uh, uh, a wealthy widower rather, um, played by Inga Stevens and her eight-year-old son. And 
she hires him to be her protector and inadvertently drags him into this conspiratorial sort of machinations that are all happening around the Algerian conflict in, uh, conflict in the late 60s in France. And so it ends up being this like kind of semi-Euro globetrotting um, protection, save this woman and her son sort of movie. And um, the reason I mentioned John Gilliman at the beginning of, uh, of our chat is you might not immediately remember his name, but he's the director of the 1976 King Kong. Oh, he's also the director wow. of the 1978 Death on the Nile, mm. the great Poirot, um, the original one with Peter Usnov, um, that is now uh, in, in the sort of Fox Studios slash Disney suite with Ken Branagh remaking all the Agatha Christie stuff, mm-hmm. casting himself with that ridiculous moustache. Mm-hmm. But this film, what I can say about it is, uh, Orson Welles in one of his later performances as this uh, oh, incredibly kind of we like love and fat it's Orson. We love it's him. Fat Orson. We love it's him, Fat man. Orson. Smoking cigars, mm-hmm. wearing robes, offering oh, George Papad grapes. Oh my God. Um, one of my favorite but- guys is Orson Welles <laughs> late in life where he's dressed like a magician almost half the time, <laughs> uh, wearing capes and draped in velvet. I love the gravitas a big old Orson can bring. Now, I would just say this. This is a uh, 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 the second uh, time that both uh, George Papad and Guillermo worked together. They worked together on the Blue Max, which was in 1966. And this is kind of really incredible. It was filmed in Paris. Um, it's, it's, it's it's filmed in Italy. Uh, it actually has its climax in the Roman Colosseum, and it's it's actually it it's got an energy to it. It's got a propulsive energy to it. It is kind of dated. Um, Orson Welles is also in a kind of cape at the climax, yes. but what what I can just say is. This is such a stunning location, location, location movie. Like as far as whatever you get out of it, whether it's kind of like you enjoy these kind of pulpy throwback, you know, uh, you know, uh, uh, meat cutes that turn into like a mission to save, you know, a, a very, a very needy damsel whose uh, whose son has also been kidnapped by this uh, weird conspiracy theory. What's great about it is just like. They're, they're wading through Trevi Fountain. They're walking through the streets of Paris. They're going through Italy and they're in this like castle um, uh, in between both countries. It's just, it's such an incredibly like fascinating looking movie and a movie that genuinely has that tactile of experience of mm. being there in the 60s and seeing what these places look like that um, for me, it was such like a, it was almost like a travelogue movie in many ways. Like as, as far as like a kind of mild conspiracy theory uh, kind of movie, um, just incredibly uh, incredibly well shot by Piero Portaluppi, one of the coolest cinematography names I've ever oh, seen man. in my life. Um, but it's really stunning, great compositions, uh, does move, doesn't doesn't uh, doesn't uh, uh, drag on very much, and it's just kind of like Papad gets in there, and he's kind of got this kind of you know handsome, bulky James Garner-ish charm to him, and he's very, um, very engaging throughout the whole thing. And it does have these kind of like strange moments of his ambivalence, which I think is a really cool thing about Papad. He's not afraid to be the guy who is hated. Mm. Um, and so for me, watching him in this, it was just another one. I mean, again, a little earlier on, we had with Imprint. Um, I'm just trying to find the name of that terrific imprint films that we had uh, with him uh, playing the sort the of avatar for the Howard Hawks. That's right. 64's Carpet Baggers. Mm. He was terrific and very ambivalent kind of character. So I, I dig him. 
I dig this. And I would say if you like these kind of movies, kind of like a proto-spy conspiracy thriller, um, this is one for you and simply looks lovely, like just looks stunning. Cool. I think I'm going to chuck this one on, Blake. This is a great recommendation. And, you know, I've got a thing for the Papad too. There's something about Papad where he's just completely fascinating on screen. Yeah, he's just, he look. there's something about him. Like, it's just, I don't know what it is, but it's, there's a moment in this film where he strikes a deal with a woman who's got an abusive husband mm. and he's trying to escape the situation. And he says, look, if, if you like help us out of this, I'll kill him for you. Yeah. And this, and this woman sort of goes, okay. And she's, she's going to do it. And he doesn't fulfill the request. Mm. He doesn't do the job for it. And he's that kind of guy. Like he doesn't mind the double cross papad. And I think that he wears it for this kind of strapping, you know, shooting out of the fifties into the sixties kind of actor. It's so cool to see that he has this, He, you know, despite his kind of like, you know, pre sixties look, um, he's got that ambivalence, which is what saw him, I guess, through like a lot of work mm. between the 60s and 70s because he's just, he's kind of got a little bit of that, he's slippery, that old part. Yeah. And Lex, honestly, if you put this on, um, one of your goals in life is to find a way to see what Orson Welles is wearing in the climax of this movie mm-hmm. and find how to purchase it Absolutely. in any way possible. Absolutely. <laughs> I want to be old Orson one day. <laughs> so we are jumping from Europe uh, we're diving out of there and we're diving over to we're gonna be happy outrage. Like other we're not like other people. I don't want to get married ever. I don't want you to touch me. Everything's dirty, filthy and dirty. And listen, we can live away from here. Somewhere else if that would help. Sure. You've seen us staring at me, wondering, talking. Yes, we Lex, I didn't get to catch this one. You had the assignment on this one. Tell me about Outrage. Well, I signed myself this one, Blake, because uh, this is directed by Ida Lupino, who I am a massive fan of. Uh, She is a pioneer of women in film. She is a fantastic director, a fantastic actor, and I find her work infinitely curious and interesting. She made a film that I really, really love that I got to catch in cinemas a while ago uh, called The Hitchhiker, which is a very thickly pulpy juicy little morsel of a thriller from the 1950s and this one the outrage you are so lucky because that is so hard to get your hands on even mm. to this day i think it's only on dvd to see it in the cinema oh my goodness there is a blu-ray now there is a blu-ray because i've got an oh, idol pino box set that has it in there that i bought the day i watched it in the <laughs> cinema because i had to see more from her Um, And this is one that I hadn't seen before. Uh, This has recently been uh, ushered in the last year or two into the National Film Registry uh, of significant films in America. And this is a new 2K restoration of the film. Um, And basically, this is a film, like all Ida Lupino films, that feel like they are decades ahead of their time. Every now and then you come across a film from the 1950s or the classical era where there is something about it, whether it be technique or it be some kind of deeper emotional resonance uh, that really strikes you as something being so much more emotionally intelligent and emotionally uh, powerful 
uh, and all emotionally forward without it feeling too melodramatic, uh, where you kind of are taken aback that this can be from this era. And this is no exception. This is a small story, uh, but very intensely told from a boldly female perspective. It's about a young woman who is uh, kind of on the precipice of their life of their rest of their life she has a nice job she has a nice family parents and she has a nice boyfriend who they're planning to get married but they're a little bit young but it's exciting because it's a new thing uh one day on her way home from work her world is shattered when she is raped and the entire film uh then follows her journey with ptsd uh, relating to this like tragic wow. incidents and uh, the trauma that she is going through. Uh, she has a supportive family, but she is feeling trapped and she basically goes on a runaway journey. And uh, she can only remember her perpetrator, her assaulter by like a scar that he had on his neck. And she like sees this scar around and she like remembers this scar. And so much of her trauma is associated with the imagery of this scar. Uh, this is a fascinating movie. And I think that its greatest strength is in, like I said, this emotional resonance that it has, where it feels really fresh but it's like from 1950 um and it's got a beautiful aesthetic all of Ida Lupino's films have like really careful aesthetic and wonderful eye uh this is no exception and so much of that is like bringing yourself into the first person perspective of this person which is another thing that I feel like you don't see too often in films of this era where not like a in actual first person POV camera wise, but this film really brings you into the emotional realm of this person. Uh, and this is something really, really interesting. It's a surprise from this batch for me. Um, cause this batch is very much, uh, with the parallax view is kind of the exception. Um, something that kind of feels a little bit pulpy, perhaps borderline noir, borderline, like be early pre-exploitation thrillers, um, where there is that kind of like noir creepiness energy, black and white. And this one is not outside of that realm which kind of makes it fascinating and there's a special feature on here that i'm yet to see that i cannot wait to dive into and it'll be worth the rewatch for me because there is an audio commentary by one of the great australian film critics alexandra helen nicholas um who's uh wow. also wrote a great essay on ida lupino that i believe is in the box that they own i can't remember where i read it but um yeah, so this is definitely one, if you are a fan of classic cinema that has not been spoken about very much, is this is one that I think is worth tracking down. Look, you just said it, but it feels like, I almost want to call this batch now that I'm looking at it, they're like out of time or ahead of time, mm. like ahead of their time, because the final film that we're going to talk about feels like drastically ahead of its time. Yeah. This film, by the sounds of things, and all of Lupino's work that kind of speak reputationally to her innovation and like mm. just the uniqueness of her, you know, female voice behind that lens and what that she brought to that. Um, that that sounds like a bit of an out of time. And a House of Cards certainly has that the ambivalence of something that's a little bit ahead of its time. So it's interesting. It's great to hear, and I think I'm excited. And look, 
I'm I'm stoked to hear about um, Alexandra Heller Nicholas because she's truly one of Australia's really? most formidable film models. Absolutely, like someone I'm intimidated by, and because uh, <laughs> I have so much <laughs> respect for them. Um, I would also say maybe something in this batch that I'm starting to see like a commonality with with you mentioning ambivalence is there is this kind of uh, apathy of evil resonating throughout mm. what this batch is, and I'm trying to think like is that. You know, I don't know how much rhyme nor reason there is to like compiling a batch of films for uh, imprint films, but you know, if they're looking in a place, if they're looking at a theme, this there feels like there is some kind of uh, commentary on evil running through most of the movies I've seen in this batch. Well, speaking of a commentary of evil and of apathy, let's dive into one. Maybe the pick of the batch. I think in any other batch, if without uh, Parallax yeah, View, without there, like a um, movie that we all consider like a true masterpiece <laughs> of any genre, uh, let's talk about the 1964 psychological thriller Lady in a Cage. There's a side of life we tend to ignore. The world of humans so callous, so degraded, they are worse than animals. My new picture, Lady in a Cage, explores that world. It's a strong picture with a terrifying theme which affects us all. That's why I urge adult, responsible people to see Lady in a Cage. You will be shocked, you will be terrified and fascinated. So I caution you, do not see it alone. See Lady in a Cage with somebody you can hold on to for dear life. If you've never seen it, it's one of the first times that we can truly say the title does what it says on the tin. Mm-hmm. Olivia de Havilland is the main character. She's a well-to-do lady who is recently suffered some medical issues. And in her home, she has installed uh, an internal elevator that takes her from the top level of her kind of palatial Los Angeles home to the bottom. Um, at the beginning of the movie, uh, she, uh, her son, played by William Swan, um, is is a man who's struggling. He's struggling with identity, struggling with things, and it looks as though he's leaving finally and for the last time and potentially to, to take his life. Um, due to a really crappy power outage, uh, as she's traveling in her house, she gets stuck in this elevator. And rather than these uh, people around her home uh, helping her as she's being able to hit an alarm bell that's triggering an alarm outside of the house, it ends up being this attractant, almost like, you know, moths to a flame of all of these undesirables in the Los Angeles streets, homeless people, crooks, um, you name it, hoodlums, you name it. And it ends up being this incredibly terrifying film, uh, extremely impactful uh, that that really speaks to the apathy and the you know the and critiques this sort of strident individualism of America, and it's such a commentary on everything that's going on in the United States at that time. And it truly, when I watched this, I was completely blown away. I think Olivia De Havilland, obviously, she's a, a complete dame mm-hmm. and such a, a you know part of the furniture in Hollywood yeah. history. She's so fantastic and is so emotionally uh, affecting. 
But this also sees the debut of James Khan. One of my um, fucking guys, brother. One of one, my all Dude, it's like peak Lexi guy. Mm-hmm. And so I watched this. I accidentally, like, sorry to go inside baseball, guys, but I accidentally put this on thinking it was part of our previous batch. Mm. And then when, and I watched it and it just knocked my socks off. And I was like, I've been waiting to hear what Lex had to say about it. It is truly, before we even start, it is truly one of the must owns um, for any James Khan person, Mm -hmm. for anyone who's been buying imprints and picking the picks of the litters and listening to us and our suggestions. This is truly at the top for me, but Lex, tell me about how you were affected by this. I'm keen to hear. Man, I have to be real with you. This genuinely shocked me, this film. This is maybe up there with the most disturbed I've ever been by a film, which is what surprised me so much because this seems kind of like an old, pulpy, very old school, black and white, kind of cheapy pre-exploitation thriller um, that's like filmed on maybe three, four sets maximum. Um, So I kind of was, I had almost no expectations beyond you saying like, this one's pretty cool. It's got James Caan in it. And that's all I kind of knew going in. So I didn't, I had no idea what to expect. And this film really got under my skin. This kind of paints this conservative's nightmare of this kind of wealthy, waspy, a white woman in a nice neighborhood with a really nice house that has an elevator in it. She's very well-to-do in that kind of upper-middle-class American way. She has this older son, um, and I think that it having, like, every element of this is, like, the conservative nightmare where she is trapped, she is disabled because she's had this hip surgery recently, and then... Uh, drunks break into her house and start stealing everything. And there's this claustrophobic element because she's stuck in this cage, completely helpless, unable to move as her house is being torn apart. And then these hoodlums led by James Khan, like these kind of like rough teenagers come in and start destroying her house and like having a violent orgy and killing people, like killing people in her house and like com- completely torturing her emotionally and and then physically, it is, you know, and then she's got this son that has like this, there's a weird Oedipal relationship with her son. And mother and son movies really get to me because I am uh, not a mummy's boy. I have mother issues. And I think that <laughs> this film really, really got under my skin in every sense because I'm claustrophobic. And uh, everything about this film just really got to me. I think I've never had such a visual, visual reaction to something that is, you know an older film like this you know usually it's some things that have to push the boundaries of where i'm at now or something that is truly by a provocateur of like the 1960s 70s and or 90s you know where it's like something that is feels a bit rotten this feels really rotten and really bleak and in a way that kind of feels barely exaggerated like only a, like <laughs> yeah. you know only a little bit really right yeah, look, I, I I was looking this up because I wanted to make sure I had the, the time, but there's a famous homicide that happened in New York City. Mm. Uh, I know the one Kitty you're going to talk about, Kitty Genovese. Kitty, it haunts me whenever it, I read about that the first time. March 13, 1964, she's a 28-year-old bartender. Mm. She's stabbed outside, stabbed to death um, outside the apartment building where she lived. Mm. And 
the New York Times posted uh, an article saying that there were 30 eight witnesses mm. who saw or heard the attack and that none of them called police and none of them came to her aid. Yeah. And so it's, it's been argued and, you know, slightly debunked and they may have been exaggerating there, but the, the premise stuck is that have we come to a nexus in our society where someone can be under such duress and no one will come to their aid. And it's so funny that, you know, it, it's, it's sort of funny and also darkly funny that that happened in March 13, 1964. This mm. film was released in July 8th. Mm. And so whilst they're filming this, I guess this sort of high concept lady in a cage, you know, like uh, you know, a chamber, chamber piece mm. um, sort of uh, thing is happening and unfolding. And I guess as the events are uh, happening in the real world, it's actually validating their premise. And so that's immediately what I thought of with lady in a cage. Mm. I was like, Oh my God, this woman is screaming out for help. And, every new introduction of a person is someone who is willing to exploit her and they don't care whether she lives or dies. They don't care about it. It's just an opportunity for them for this quick, uh, quick buck, this quick, you know, uh, satisfaction, this one day where your belly's full. Mm. Um, and so then you start to think if everyone in this film is like this, what the hell kind of society is America in the 1960s. Mm. And so it has this really interesting shifting perspectives and shifting empathy that you have as well as being completely visceral. And I was just like, it just knocked me for six. Yeah. Um, and so it was completely exquisite, as exquisite as James Caan's chest hair oh. uh, in this movie, which Man, is Man, he's maybe, got a freaking rug maybe, over his whole body, dude. <laughs> <laughs> it is a rug and a half and it is just it, it's all it's unbridled and wild untamed glory in this but no it's it's truly a really special one um a dark one really dark um, but truly a really bleak really bleak dark movie and i think a very 2021 kind of movie yeah. you know if you if you, you would watch this and be like people in isolation and people you know not caring about mm. other people and people treating others with hostility um, there's some really deep resonances, which I don't actually think they would have ever planned for. Okay. How could you? Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, truly this is a, this is a massive discovery. Like yeah. for me too, I was just like knocked to six. Creeped me out so much. Uh, I think it will take some time, but I eventually I will be rewatching this. Got a great early James Khan performance. Think it's his acting debut. And uh, yeah, it's a fascinating one, man. It really, really has affected me the last couple of days since I watched it. I, um, yeah, man, I don't know how else to say it. Like, I, it's actually really <laughs> freaked me out this movie, and it's exciting. And, and seeing... I've got the, I've got, I've got the text to prove yeah, it. I've got. Uh, you while I was Lex watching like, it, this, dude. He's texting while I was watching. He goes, "This movie is." freaking me out mm. i'm like yeah it is it made me sweat dude like I, I i was really really affected by this and it's cool when i logged it on letterbox just seeing people adding it to their watch list where like no one that i know has ever heard of this movie before i'm like okay cool <laughs> there's something special here and i'm really looking forward to like people getting into like this 1964 conservative nightmare of a movie Yes, yeah, so wonderful. Guys, look, thank you so much for listening to the December Imprint Companion Part 1. Uh, we are going to dive into three more films in this eight-film batch in the next one. You're going to hear from us about Kitten with a Whip, The Last Train to Gun Hill, and finally, The Parallax View. I've been Blake Howard. You can find me at One Blake Minute on 
Instagram and on Twitter. You can find Lex at this is Alexi both on Instagram and Twitter. You can find his great podcast Total Reboot um, anywhere you get your podcasts, as well as the incredible Patreon, which they do extended reboots and mm-hmm. even if you go back in the catalog total respects yeah. which i totally respect um and you can also find everything that i'm doing right now an incredible buffet mm-hmm. of inc- uh, uh, stuff coming to one heat minute production there is something very uh, exciting coming in the next few days but currently you just got a great hangout chat with the one of the all-time great directors ms karen kusama that's right. Karen Kusama and Phil Hay, her hubby, came on to do a special so episode cool, all about the Parallax View with me. There's a second part to that episode, which is Walter Chaw and I also unpacking wow. it. So two episodes awesome. all on the Parallax View. Excited for, to share that with you guys. But we will catch you on another Imprint Companion soon. Make sure your disc trays are clean. <laughs> Make sure you don't keep, uh, don't don't have any uh, hot or yes. cold objects near your Blu-ray players. Keep it nice and cool in the summer in Oz. Don't forget to um, wipe in the winter down that laser reader on your disc <laughs> tray, okay? <laughs> Put one of those Make discs in wi- that have the little bristles on it to clean the laser off. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. I remember getting one of those from a video store. You guys take care, and uh, we'll catch you on the next episode very soon. Hi, this is Blake Howard, host and producer of One Heat Minute Productions podcast. We dive into the great and underappreciated cinematic works, often one minute or one scene at a time. Our crew of guests are some of the most wonderful filmmakers, writers, authors, and critics ever assembled. Our shows include One Heat Minute, Josie and the Podcats, All the President's Minutes, Increment Vice, and right now, Zodiac Chronicle. Check out oneheatminute.com or find us wherever you get your podcasts.